0: You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbaum of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times.
1: Um so I'm Ben. I'm a opinion pollster by day and uh reference her by night, but we won't go into that. Helena is a baroness and many other things. She normally wears fur, I think, for other robes of working I want to talk to you. get to wear an outfit. So, our, our role is simply to introduce a series of eminent people who are going to argue the case for what connects us or disconnects us. We have a break at 11 o'clock, so we have to get going very, very quickly. Um, we also want to invite one of you, and you must reflect on this and come and talk to us, to come up here and be the seventh speaker. Um, and you can lobby it on behalf of anything you like. Uh, pretty much, although the judge's decision, I think, is final, Um, that would be. But, um, Hannah, do you want to call the
2: first witness? Well, before I call the first witness, I just want to say a number of things. Our holy triangle is slightly different. Our holy triangle is that we're going to have advocates who will make the argument as to why their sphere um, is the one which makes the connections. And so they will argue for the connectivity of a particular um, sphere of influence. Um, ben and I get to be the judges. Um, and, uh, and then you, in turn, become the jury. And you've all got voting slips, which should have been distributed or being distributed now. The voting slips you'll see have a list of a number of witnesses, and, um, and then be, they open my witness if somebody persuades us that their uh, sphere is not included. I should mention to you that on the program we had uh, Doug uh, Richard from the School uh, for Startups uh, really to speak about innovation in business, and uh, he um, had to call out. So uh, he's uh, he's not here. It may be that one of you want to make the case for the role of entrepreneurship in in this whole connectivity business. Um, But you may have another idea. And so please come to us in the break and tell us, and we'll decide whether you get to have the mic, to be the, uh, the seventh witness. And so we're going to kick off, and I call our first witness, known to all of you, a great champion of human rights and law and liberty, Channing Chakrabarti. Thank you,
0: my lady. It's with uh, some trepidation that I enter the, uh, the court of the Red Baroness. <laughs> us is is obviously our common humanity and um, my submission is that that common humanity is best reflected and protected by our fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law. Um, You will hear uh, in in a while from all sorts of um, powerful expert witnesses about the importance of protecting culture, business, the environment, and so on, but I would say that none of these spheres, none of these values can be protected without our fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law. They are the bedrock of civilisation. We can't protect, as I've said, markets, democracy, culture, or even a sustainable environment of the future without them. Let Let me explain. I never really understood economics. I went to the LSE, but uh, I was told by people cleverer than me that um, that, um, that I didn't understand economics. I still don't. I just now know that the economists don't either. <laughs> but I was brought up to believe that, it, that the market was a kind of a kind of jungle uh, in which the, in which there needed to be justice and the strongest would survive. But I now see that actually that you need quite a lot of law to have a sustainable market. You need the criminal law to stop us robbing each other. You need the civil law to bind us to the bargains we strike with each other. And it would seem from recent years that we need rather a lot more by way of protections and regulations in order to keep the market from eating itself with calamitous consequences for for everyone around. And the same is true, I would suggest, of democracy. And Mr. Carswell, in a while, anyway, will say um, something like um, judges are usurping their position and, uh, and human rights get in the way of, um, of the ballot box and great movements of people. And I would suggest that that is to misunderstand democracy. Because yes, of course, it is about having elections every few years, but think about what happens in between. Think about a popular leader who comes to power in any country that grants one of the and then decides that actually the opposition are treacherous and irritating and ought to be looked up. Or that the, um, this is topical, that the press perhaps ought to be censored. Or that uh, the judges themselves are getting in the way of whatever the great progressive programme is. That is the way that today's democracy descends into something different sense, perhaps, into more rule. What separates the two? The rules of the game. Fundamental rights and freedoms, free speech, fair trials, and so on, protected by an independent judiciary, and the rule of law. And the same would be true of the cultural space. How is Ms. Kelly going to argue that you could have culture protected, nurtured, so that it prospers, so that it's shared by everyone without, for example, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of association, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, and so on. And I would say, ultimately, the most most powerful and potent of all our human rights values is that of equality under the law. Because, you see, for this moment at least, my speech is free and yours is a little more expensive. (laughs) <laughs> I, hope, I hope that will change, change in a while and you'll get your, uh, your opportunity to, uh, to intervene in this debate and so it's particularly upsetting that in perhaps the oldest unbroken democracy on earth that we, that we share, that we, that we live in there are so many people at the moment who suggest that we should tear up the post-World War II human rights framework that was hard fought for, that was born in blood, out of the Holocaust, and the Blitz and all of that. And there are people in this great democracy about who say that it's old fashioned, that it's un-British, that it uh, has no place in the 21st century. And imagine how upsetting that is for the, for the Director of Liberty. And I think that that, that message comes from this fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of democracy itself and the interplay between the rule of law and any civilization. You begin with the rule of law. Think about a country that has been bombed and blitzed. Where do you begin? You begin by protecting people. And you begin with the rule of law. And as I say, that rule of law has to have content which includes protections for these There is a small bundle of hard-won, fundamental rights and freedoms. No torture or slavery. Free speech, conscience, association. A little bit of personal privacy. Sometimes people think that's a bit of a bourgeois luxury, but how can you have other human rights without a little bit of personal privacy? How can you have a a free election without a secret ballot? How can you have even journalism, which is sometimes set up in tension with privacy without protecting your sources and so on? And because so many of these rights and freedoms do create tensions and competitions, you do have to have equal treatment, because that is where the law and politics come together. That is the discipline that the law imposes on great majorities, so they don't, they don't penalize disenfranchised minorities. Impose, it imposes the discipline that you do to others as you would do to yourself. In legal speak, we call it non-discrimination. Perhaps in human speak, we call it empathy, and it certainly connects us together. So these are human rights values. They are, I think, the most important means of connecting ourselves, protecting ourselves, and the constitutional environment for our children. I'll end with the words of the late, great Tom Bingham, who asked if any of these values are un-British, superfluous, unnecessary. There may be some, he said, who would like to live in a country where they are not protected, but I am not of their number. Nor I. Thanks for listening.
1: to the next witness. If you have any questions or observations, you can email me now and I will feed them into the process, Page at Ipsos, Ipsos.com. Uh, so uh, we can do that as well as handing around mics for those of you who haven't managed to make the Wi-Fi work um, or aren't on another But So I'd like to call now um, David Fenton, uh, an ace communicator of many years in the field of Climate change, but many other good things, and
3: also die back and out of college because of the '60s. David. Thank you. And I'm going to talk about science, and not having been to school, I suggest you take it with grain of salt. Uh, get this from working. So to start, please uh, forgive me as an American pressing an audience of British people about climate change as your country at least has climate goals, while half our Congress still won't even accept that humans are healing the planet. Of course, you sent us these religious fanatics who won't accept science, and some of us wish that you had sent them to Australia instead of the criminals. We'd all be better off, perhaps. We are connected by and to the natural systems, of course, which sustain humanity, most notably a stable climate. If we overwhelm nature, we will sunder our connection, risk our economy, our spirit, and our very existence, and that is exactly, I'm afraid, what we are doing. We are imperiling the climate that has sustained civilization, pushing the Earth's thermostat all the way up to maximum. Contrary to popular notion, we are not risking the planet. In the long run, the planet will be fine. What we are risking, however, is the human race along with the many other species we are taking down with us. Certainly, human civilization will be gone, along with the climate that enabled it, when the oceans have fully acidified and sea level has risen 15 meters. That's the level the last time in Earth's history there were 400 parts per billion carbon in the atmosphere as there is now. We are at 397. And the last time, carbon concentrations were six to 700 parts per million, levels we are rushing towards this century if we don't change course. The sea was over 50 meters higher. So you can imagine the Suffolk coast. And they figure it will be at least a meter this century, but probably more. While scientists can't tell you the precise moment this will come about, They say it is inevitable with energy business as usual. Already, change has come much sooner than anyone expected. We're seeing big climate impacts now at only a tenths of degree centigrade average warming. This is far earlier than the two to three centigrade threshold that dominated scientific thinking for a decade. Every year now is critical, as once the glaciers begin to break up, we don't know how to stop them. We are connected to this issue, climate change, because if we don't solve it, we won't get to solve any of the other issues, while worsening most of them, especially war and poverty. And we aren't solving it. I'm afraid the world's governments are rushing to develop every fossil fuel on Earth, tar sands, shale oil, shale gas, making each year hotter, causing ever more extreme weather. It's a mad rush. We have yet to even experience fully half the warming from the emissions we have already released. It's built into the system. It's lurking in the oceans, soon to come forth. Yet with the warming, we have, oh, there goes my teleprompter. Sorry. That's what you get for getting the free programs. <laughs> well, hopefully I won't have to start it over. You have to forgive me. This is going to take a second. But I'm going to go to the regular text. Can I ask a question, that yes. while David? Please. Please, I'm so sorry. When
2: David uh, and then Douglas are finished, is the audience going to discuss and debate at all? How going to run that? If there's time. If there's time
0: set yeah, we,
2: we, we are we are bound by certain other strictures so um let's use the a space right and if there is a space then we might invite in some questions and we'll ask our speakers to come up and answer them. But otherwise the plan is to go for a walk, come back, hear more witnesses and then but... Yes and, and, and let us let, make it clear that there will be an opportunity for the the open discussion to take place at that stage. Um, and, uh, and we'd like lots of engagement, um, if we can, in that time, uh, in the second part of this debate. Okay.
3: Back yes, back. thank you very much, well done. Uh, as I was saying, half of it that we've caused, we get to experience. But with the warming we've already experienced, the North Polarized Cap will soon be no more. While land-based glaciers are melting and threatening to cause unstable coastlines literally for generations to come. This is happening now waves, droughts, floods, storms, lost crops. There's more rain in the UK, have you noticed? It's from an atmosphere that has 5% more water vapor in it. It's not a surprise. 50,000 people were killed by the European heat wave in 2003, and scientists have now directly linked that to global warming. It was not natural variation. We are way outside of the range of natural variability. The Russian heat wave raised food prices that helped trigger the Arab Spring. Climate change-induced droughts have begun, and drought predictions for mid-century suggest two to three times dust bowl levels throughout much of America and Europe, too. Consider this. We are adding the energy equivalent of 400,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs to our atmosphere every single day. For those of you interested in science, that's a half watt per square meter on the Earth. 400,000 Hiroshima bombs a day being added added to the climate system because we are trapping this heat. The real tragedy is that we can still avoid the most dangerous climate change and in the process create a much more prosperous world. There is still time if we get started soon, but there isn't much time. We really just have a few more years to start making big, steady reductions. And we have the technology to wean the world off fossil fuels. And we can certainly afford to do so in the United States, the Federal National Renewable Energy Laboratory, a wonderful group called the Rocky Mountain Institute, McKinsey & Company. All these people have created roadmaps for how to do this and do it affordably. The transition, properly financed, need not cost much or even anything on a net basis, according to McKinsey, while climate inaction will ruin the economy, perhaps forever. And after we change energy technologies, yes, we will still be able to fly, drive, heat and cool our homes, run the industries, and we'll also be able to continue the rise of billions out of poverty. I've promised Julia we will still be able to fly on vacations. And as you know, she will hold me to that. We will get energy from different sources, and we will do more with less energy. Here's one example. of the energy used in buildings is wasted and can be saved with an investment that pays back in three years. The Empire State Building, just did this. This is just one example. The problem is not a lack of technology. The problem is a lack of urgency and a lack of political will. And it's also the pollution of our politics and the distortion of reality by this most powerful industry in the world. At bottom, what we face is really the conflict with a small number of oil, coal, and gas companies. And yes, I'm afraid, Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, and Wall Street Journal, and your Daily Mail. Shame on all of these people for even now calling climate change a hoax. The ultimate human drama, it seems to me, is being played out. Will we let them block progress till it's too late? Carbon stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years. Imagine if we found out tomorrow that the North Korean government was secretly pumping a gas into the atmosphere, which was raising the temperature, searing the crops, raising sea levels, and increasing storms. We would demand immediate military action, wouldn't we? So why aren't we demanding the transition to non-carbon energy from our leaders? Now, here in Britain, things, I'm afraid, are sliding backwards. Deniers are gaining influence, as you've seen. The climate promise once showed by your prime minister is slipping, pushed by a chancellor who claims addressing warming will hurt the economy. This is rubbish. The opposite is true. Not addressing it will guarantee economic decline as the weather worsens. It is imperative that this issue be depoliticized before your next election and before ours. We must come together on this. To preserve a livable climate, scientists say that 80% of the known reserves of the fossil fuel companies must be kept in the ground. Think about that. So 80% of the value of their equity must be written off. Now many, I'm sure in this room, would say this is impossible. This is a war that cannot be won. Now, I don't believe this. I'm quite certain that humanity is gonna wake up and force a different business model on these people. I'm sure that the intelligentsia of the world is going to wake up too, although it's very asleep right now, I'm afraid. I'm sure conservatives will eventually realize that the market mechanism of pricing carbon is far preferable to the inevitable government command and control. The public will demand as the weather worsens. I'm just not sure any of this is going to happen in time. And we have very little time. So will you all please help in making sure it does happen in time for the sake of our children and everything we are truly connected to? Because more than any other challenge we've faced, this one needs the best and the brightest to come together. We must connect for the climate and humanity. Thank you.
2: So, our next call for connection comes from Douglas Carswell, Douglas. Who is a member of Parliament? Um, he is a Conservative member of Parliament, elected in 2005. Douglas, I can tell you, is well known for being one of those people in Parliament, and they're not—they're not wall to wall. He does understand connectivity and uh, and the new um, uh, the new media. So, Douglas, so over to you to talk about politics.
4: Thank, thank you very much for that. And uh, what, what is politics? Um, before I. Um, uh, came here, I was looking up on, on, on the internet for a definition, and I found various definitions online as to what politics is. Um, the, the first I found said that politics is, quote, the art or science of governing. That doesn't really tell us very much. Um, the next quote um, on my Google search said, um, the activities of government concerning political relations within countries. Um, not, not very inspiring. And then my eye. Uh, moved down a few lines and was caught by a slightly less favourable definition of politics. It said that politics is quote, the art of getting votes from the poor and election funds from the rich by promising to protect each from the other. (laughs) Then I saw an even less favourable quote lower down which simply said politics, a term derived from the word poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking parasites. (laughs) I prefer to think of uh, politics, um, maybe I'm exhibiting what I will later like call my defamation professional, my, my, my professional bias, but I prefer to look at politics as, and prefer to define it as a process for making collective choices. And we, we all need to make collective choices, even as a, 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 a libertarian, I recognize we need to make collective choices. Um, politics fundamentally connects us all, because it is, in essence, how we decide things together. uh, politics is how we determine public policy. Now, Shami spoke uh, with great passion um, and great knowledge and great conviction about the need for uh, respect for human rights and just law. But how we preserve liberty is a political question. Uh, David spoke about climate change with great uh, authority and uh, conviction. There are many other pressing public policy issues that I'm sure all of us uh, uh, can think about that motivate us. And you're all right. All these issues are absolutely vital. Our fates are linked to how we deal with these issues. But it's politics that will decide if and how we do so. Politics is the umbrella that sits above all these vital issues. Now it's fashionable to wish that this wasn't the case. It's very easy for someone like me to sit on a panel at at question time or any questions and get a round of applause by saying that such and such an issue is so vital we can't turn it into a political football. We've got to uh, depoliticise it. Um, How often do we hear somebody saying, why can't we just leave this vitally important issue to the experts? Let the uh, professionals get on with it. The idea that we should leave something to the wisdom of, of technocrats Seems particularly appealing if you spend a lot of time in Westminster in close proximity to either front bench. <laughs> we like the idea of the expert, it's very appealing. This disinterested specialist, this person who can look beyond the partisan and strong, this person who can discern what is in the public interest. But, but no such person exists. We all have prejudices. All of us are imperfectly connected to the world. This gives us biases, as as Hayek understood, since we all lack connections to every fact and to every factor, perfect knowledge cannot be assembled in one place, certainly not at the desk of an expert in government. Technocracy seems appealing until you realise that, quote, letting professionals get on with it is what happened at Mid Staffordshire Hospital. We left experts to get on with setting interest rates, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, and we had a massive credit boom and bust. We leave it to experts at the Financial Service Authority to get on with it, and they tanked the banks. We need politics to scrutinize experts. We can't leave it to experts. Public policy means that the public has to have oversight and the say. It gives legitimacy. Now, doing the right things in public policy can mean a big ask. If um, if we want uh, a sort of respect for human rights, the Champions eloquently said, we need people to ignore the tabloid simplicities. If we want people to take the action on climate change that that that, that David wanted, we're gonna have to ask them to pay higher energy bills. That's a big ask. We can only do it via politics. It might be messy, it might be clumsy, it might be infuriating. But it's essential. The fact that things might be unpopular is all the more reason to go out there, and argue, and get them a democratic legitimacy. One of the reasons why the public feels disaffection with the political process is the sense that public policy is decided without reference to the public. Politics also means that we get uh, corrections. We get uh, uh, this system of, sort of what you might call auto-correction. in in public policy making. Now the French have this this wonderful term, um, déformation professionnelle, this is the tendency to look at things from the point of view of one's own profession. Um, We're we're all guilty, journalists are guilty of it, politicians are guilty of it, state agents are guilty of it, diplomats are guilty of it. But it's a product of the lack of connectedness of certain professions. You might even say their insularity. This means that we all tend to have a series of assumptions, and in a worst case scenario this can lead to, to inertia. The wisdom of the few always needs to be challenged and crowdsourced. Politics is the way to do that. Our knowledge and understanding is constantly changing. Our knowledge and understanding uh, is is changing. Technology is changing. We need to adapt and refine public policy approaches. And the best way of doing that is, is through politics. There is no final word in the great public policy issues of our day. There never will be. Now, we all know what's wrong with politics as practiced in this country in 2013. You had an earlier session talking about this. We, we, we know that politics, as practiced, has a great disconnect between the government and the government. Look, look at the falling turnout in elections. You know, I, I was on doorsteps in East League not long ago and had the door shut in my face several times by people saying, all you politicians are the same. But this is a failure not of politics. This is a failure of the party system we have in this country today. We have 19th century institutions and a 19th century way of aggregating votes and opinion to try to hold account 21st century decision making. It's not politics that's to blame. This is an argument for putting politics right, not an argument against politics. <coughs> We're so used to seeing um, politics dominated by these sort of hyper cautious managerialist career politicos. We, we sometimes forget that actual. Uh, Conviction, conviction on liberty, conviction on human rights, conviction about the environment is, is actually what ought to drive and can drive people into politics and a career in politics in the first place. Yeah, we often hear the term political conviction, and I'm sad to say we don't think of someone driven by passion, we, 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 we think of some court case. Um, yeah, but, but these are arguments to change politics, not against politics. And politics does need to change, it needs to reconnect. I, I I have my own ideas for this. I wrote a book recently where I talked about how to make the political system reconnect better, more outwardly accountable. I would personally like to see open primaries, so everyone, regardless of party affiliation, has a say over who gets to be the candidate for each of the main parties. I would like a recall mechanism, so we can sack people who fiddle their expectations or are just generally useless. I would like us to crowdsource legislation, so that we can crowdsource the, the, the wisdom of many. You know, it's party politics that's the problem, and I would like the political parties to be, if I can put it like this, a little bit less like HMV, uh, that music retailer that uh, lost touch with its punters, lost market share and went bust. And I would like political parties to be a bit more like Spotify, uh, open source, low uh, no barriers to entry, able to cater to niche distinctive particular tastes, more based on the idea of self-selection. Uh, the internet means that we're moving to a world of, of hyper-connectedness, And we we, we see enormous change because of it. Change for the better. And it will bring change for the better in politics too. Politics has been the driver of of huge change. Huge change for the better in the West. Um, It's created greater equality. It ended slavery. It's politics that's created a freer, more fair society. It's politics that's given us more opportunity. A final thought, if I may, as a historian. I recently uh, read at... A decade or two after I should have, John Julius Norwich's uh, book about the history of Venice. And as I finished reading it, I thought, what, what explains why a mud bank off the east coast of Italy should flourish for centuries? Why was it that this mud bank off the coast of Italy became a centre of commerce? a centre of technological innovation, of book publishing, of science, of culture, of art, all the things that the others will tell you are so vital and so important. Why was it that it prospered compared to the giant Holy Roman Empire next it? Why was it that it eclipsed and eventually helped finish off the Byzantine Empire in all its might? And then that got me thinking, it's not just Venice. Why is it, for example, that the Dutch Republic, a a, a swampy little blot on the edge of Europe, flourished? no disrespect to any Dutch. <laughs> why, why in history do we see some societies take off like this and produce magnificent culture, art, advances of, of all kinds? Is it the natural resources? The precious few natural resources in Holland or Venice. Is it technology? I suspect technol- technological advances are a consequence, not a cause of progress. Was it something in the water? No. It's because... They got the politics right, whether by accident or by design. If power is dispersed, and if you reign in the arbitrary excise of power, then you'll create a political system that will allow human interconnectedness to flourish. If you get the politics right and the political system right, all that other connectedness that is the true driver of human progress will kick in and you will take off. If you don't, the parasites will take over. Anyway,
1: thank you. So witnesses, we're, we're going for a walk in about five minutes, but we have some interesting questions uh, emailed in, uh, and some on the floor. But there will be time for more questions after your walk, and um, at the end of the session around twelve um, o'clock by one o'clock. But just now. Um, while, while you were all speaking, I, I found out for each one that I was sort of compelled to say yes immediately to each proposition. But, um, one interesting question from Eduardo, who's hiding somewhere there, his point was um, freedom is all very well, but if you have massive inequality, how do you experience that? I think I'm tracing your your. I know mean, that's far much shorter than my view. Yeah, yes. but that's effectively, you may, you may, you know, you may show me a country with freedom, but if, if you are, you might argue Brazil has law of various kinds, and we can argue about how well it's administered, but everybody's free. It's, it's the old Brazil then, about um, we can all push the ribs from breakfast, but of course I wasn't, um, I wasn't
2: speaking
0: for freedom. I was speaking for a framework of fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law and that's a little bit more complex than just saying freedom. It's about, it's about um, freedom and protection and of course it's, it's, um, it's equality that is in a sense the most important human rights value of, of, of all. Now that, I'm not saying that in a sort of left-wing sense that we all have to have the same amount of money but we certainly need equality of esteem and equality of protection and equal treatment. under under the law. So that that is really the proposition that I'm making, and I'm saying that we can't promote any of these other witnesses' testimony without that basic bedrock of civilisation and of justice. And then you can do politics. You can't do politics without a space that has the rule of law. You can't um, can't achieve climate justice if you don't have the rule of law. You won't protect culture without human rights and the rule of law. That's why I ought to win.
2: <laughs> Eduardo, it could be that you might want to make a bid to us as your uh, judges that you make you you make the seventh argument for equality, not Greece which is Mao equality, but the equality as a value is ultimately the thing that connects us. Um, that because we find it comfortable, even with different views, but because there is a parity of esteem and so on, that, that in the end is where real connections come. And you might want to think about that as the an argument you might want to make. But there's another question that came through was um, in relation to, which really I think probably is best addressed, um, well, first of all, to, to, what we have to do. How do we reconnect leaders with society without a profound reconnection? Because otherwise, we're not going to be able to address the crises about which you are speaking. Reconnect what? Leaders. 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 Society's leaders. Yeah. Well, it'd be nice to have some, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you
3: know, this is linked to the other problem of inequality because you know, in, in my country, we have a kind of refutalization going on massive amounts of income going to the top. And that undermines freedom because it causes political corruption. I mean, that's not a new story in history. So we're very concerned about that.
2: Okay. and the final question was about um, politics. Aren't politicians now just technocrats, um, and that essentially that's what the problems are? And so the arguments which you're making
4: I'm no longer able to I'm afraid I, 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 I profoundly disagree with the idea that politicians are technocrats. My experience is that actually politicians are part of a, a façade. Um, a historical reference, if I may, in, in, in um, early medieval uh, France, there was a dynasty that was once very powerful um, called the uh, Merovingians, and they used to make all the decisions in the French state. Um, but slowly they were usurped by um, their officials and eventually deposed. And I, I think um, a lot of uh, the, the, the people that we see as active ministers remind me of uh, a sort of marriage monarchy. They are, they are sitting in the throne, but the real power uh, is, is exercised by a, 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 an elite that's not accountable to anyone. Um, for example, George Osborne is announcing a, a, a budget. Um, one of the great macroeconomic decisions of our time, uh, how much money to put in circulation or the cost of credit, is not decided by him or by uh, me, or by anyone accountable to anyone you elect. It's decided by a group of people called central bankers. Um, the, the idea that um, we uh, elect people and they make public policy choices, uh, I wish it were true. If that was the case, then we could have real change in this country. But um, you know, under successive governments, we've had the same old failed policy.
2: So that takes us into something that we've, we've heard sort of resonating through the, the last couple of days, which is that power rests somewhere beyond the nation state and the politicians within the nation state, and that given that power is in other places, that shouldn't we be reinventing global governance in some way? And so in talking about politics, Um, What about the bigger picture
4: of Davos? I'm I'm sure that the technocrats would absolutely love it if Davos man decided on public policy issues. Mm -hmm. The supranationalization of public policy is a wonderful way of uh, taking the people out of the equation. But no, I, I think that's completely wrong. We need a new kind of democracy, a new kind of politics. But that means not passing power to ever more remote officials. It means making the people who are career politicians and who pretend to run things answer for how things are decided, and they're not...
0: But it's all complicated, isn't it, because, because, because there's a shrinking interconnected world, either because, you know, business is international, or because the world is literally shrinking because of the internet and that, and, and the fact that people can identify as much with someone of their own faith in a village on the other side of the world, as they do with their, <coughs> their, their neighbour in their village and their religion. in in Suffolk we are interconnected um, perhaps in more ways than we ever ever were and I think it's bizarre that people want to rip up international law and international human rights in in that because sometimes people on your side of politics when they say say Douglas say that we We should should have rights rights for free born Englishmen as opposed to human rights for human beings. I'm not saying you're promoting it, but some okay. in your party promotes that idea. Rights for free-born Englishmen, but not human rights for human beings. And that's so short-sighted, and this is the road one Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. and it's Gary McKinnon mm-hmm. off to America. We have to choose whether to be foreigners in most parts of this world, <laughs> or human beings everywhere. In
2: this is a language. You're describing a language that's a long connection,
4: uh, well beyond the nation-state. One of the extraordinary things I've discovered as being an empty is the moment that people see the imaginary who resets on you, they imagine that you take a lot of positions, that I think David Cameron would be quite surprised to think that I, I take that. I'm... I, 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 I'm not an Orthodox conservative. Um, Edmund Burke, who um, is often cited by traditional conservatives to defend um, the system of government that we have at the moment, once said that the reason why he and the politicians like him should make decisions is because the decisions were made 300 miles away from his Bristol constituents, and the constituents had no way of knowing what was being discussed. Well, of course, Edmund Burke spoke in an age when they didn't have uh, television or the internet or, or these things, and of course Edmund Burke was shortly thrown out of office by the good people of Bristol so um, you know the, the, the traditional Tory defence of, of, of um, leaving it to a, 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 an elite to decide things I, I have no time with but um, you know the fact that the world is even more interconnected than Edmund Burke could imagine to me is a, a, an argument not in favour of a super representative democracy, where we have even more remote representatives at a supranational level, it's an argument for direct democracy.
1: We're going to stop there. We're going to have a break. We're going to resume the discussion after the next set of witnesses. Please give you thank the people here. And, uh,
0: that was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.